this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today there's been a lot of talk of and concerns raised about food fortification recently food fortification is the adding of one or more nutrients to a staple food aiming to compensate for deficiencies in a large population in his independence day speech this year Prime Minister Modi said that all rice distributed in government systems including in the public distribution system and those served at midday meals would be fortified by 2024 considering the burden of anemia in India iron is to be one of the nutrients added to the rice the government has already launched a pilot program in 15 districts using fortified rice for distribution but does all our rice need to be fortified is iron deficiency the only cause of anemia and how big is our anemia burden Is there evidence to show that iron fortification will work or are there other steps that policymakers could try to speak to us about these issues we have with us today Dr Anura Kurpat professor of physiology and nutrition at St John's Medical College Bangalore good morning Dr Anura Kurpat and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast good morning doctor could you explain to us what fortification is and what the difference is between fortifying food and taking supplements Yes thank you so let me uh, explain what fortification means it is the way in which you could uh, add a chemical nutrient into a staple food which is eaten regularly and daily so that that adds to the daily nutrient intake for the fortified nutrient now for example you could fortify salt with iodine which has been happening for a long time you could consider adding iron into salt as well the other staple foods that are eaten daily are rice and wheat and oil and each of these is uh, is a target for fortification for different nutrients some of which are water soluble so they would go into rice and into wheat and some of which are oil soluble like vitamin a and vitamin d which you would consider in a more oily medium like vegetable cooking oil or even milk so the point is that uh, or the theory is that you are adding a small amount of nutrients into a staple food and because that staple food is eaten every day the beneficiary does not have to change their behavior it is almost like a covert thing where nutrition magically gets better because that beneficiary is eating that food and everything should be hunky dory but it isn't one of the reasons is that it is technologically quite difficult to fortify a staple food without changing some characteristic of that food it could be for example the color uh, many of the efforts in fortifying salt before landed up in trouble because the salt became discolored and in some of the studies we did at the rural level uh, many households said that the salt looked dim it didn't look bright now whether that means it did not look bright white or something else it's that's just the word that was used the point is that the household did not want a dim salt in another state when salt was fortified with iron 
unfortunately those iron salts tend to be black and so people started noticing black specks in the salt in other places the food itself begins to interact with that iron and change color people don't like that either sometimes there may be a smell so you can see that it's very hard to really fortify a food in a way that the beneficiary has no idea that there was something added to it they always figure it out even with rice one of the problems is that india has hundreds if not thousands of different rice grains each of which has a different color uh, uh, and a different size now imagine that you want to fortify these rice produced with a kernel of rice that is made up in such a way that it contains all the extra nutrients but matches the kernels of rice that already are there in the market remember i said that there are thousands of varieties and therefore thousands of shapes how on earth are you going to manage making exactly similar kernels which will get into nationally distributed rice of different varieties without the beneficiary knowing that oops there's something different in this rice and the instinct of anyone who's cleaning that rice would be to pick out grains that look odd to pick out grains that float these are the problems and they really are serious technical problems when fortifying rice so if you consider rice a uh, fortification of foods it is in theory a wonderful thing because you're saying you're giving a small amount and you're going to somehow create uh, magically an increased nutrient benefit to a person and that person will never know what you were doing it doesn't work that way and i will tell you there's one last philosophical issue this philosophical issue links to what we call dietary diversity the key to diver- dietary diversity is telling a person no food in your diet is the only thing you should be eating you should be eating a variety of foods every day and please don't hang on to any one food fortification tells you the opposite it tells you this is the food you must eat every day and you must eat a lot of it that makes no sense to me in fact the i, I really think that it is counterintuitive to consider fortification and dietary diversity in the same frame because i think they are contradictory doctor speaking about iron fortified rice i india has a huge burden of malnutrition and anemia which significantly impacts the health of our women and children some believe that fortifying rice which we spoke about just now with iron could help decrease this burden of anemia and help improve health outcomes are there any studies that show that iron fortification of rice works all right so let me answer that question with uh, in two uh, different frames the first frame is to think that we have a lot of anemia and that anemia is because of an iron deficiency and that therefore we need to fortify rice with iron now the first myth over here is that there is a huge amount of iron deficiency the reason this is thought is because in 2010 that's fully a decade ago the national institute of nutrition which is our premier institute of nutrition in the country and which sets the regulations for the requirements of nutrients a decade 2010 
they came out with the nutrient requirements for Indians, which was a very strong document. One reason being that it identified the requirement of women to be 20 milligrams per day and the requirement of children and adolescents to be no less than 30 milligrams per day. Now, if you take these figures and apply them to a diet that is normally eaten in India, it's impossible to eat 30 milligrams of iron per day. It becomes then mandatory and it becomes important and it becomes everything relevant to health to fortify the food because the food couldn't meet 30 milligrams per day. Well, in 2020, fully a decade later, the National Institute of Nutrition has come out with a revised guideline. And if you look at the revised guidelines, the requirement for iron has dropped by 40 to 50%. In other words, the requirement is not 20 to 30 milligrams per day. It's now about 15 to 18 milligrams per day. That's a big decline. And if you now apply these requirement figures to the daily diets of people, you'll find that deficiency is not that rife as you thought it was. So we were using the wrong metric and it's high time we began to use the correct metric that is available today. It's on the NIN website and it's available for all to see. The problem is it doesn't suit those who want to push fortification because suddenly the gap isn't there. There's another reason to think that the gap is not there. And that is that if you look at anemia in this country, not all of it is because of iron deficiency. A lot of uh, anemia in this country is not because of iron deficiency, more than half. Now that tells you something, that just pushing more iron into the diet is not going to solve the problem. And this is another issue that is really worrying us because honestly, you, it's not about putting more and more iron into the diet. It's absorbing it effectively and then utilizing it effectively to build that hemoglobin, which is the building block for carrying oxygen in the body. And the decline of that is what leads to anemia. So you need to use the iron in the diet properly rather than just keep pushing more and more into the body. And that happens if you have a good environment with cleanliness because cleanliness is linked to a lower rate of inflammation in the body and inflammation blocks the absorption of iron. So a cleanly environment, a clean environment will help a great deal. And that should be a major focus. In addition, eating fruits and vegetables improve the absorption of iron because vitamin C is available and that's a great thing to increase iron absorption. Other fruits and vegetables and milk and eggs will give you vitamin B12 and folic acid, which are again very important nutrients, which are also important in building hemoglobin. It's not just iron. So to, to convert a problem of anemia into a monolithic iron problem, and then begin to beat the whole population on the head with large amounts of iron is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And has it worked? Well, here it is. If you take a person who is anemic and deficient in iron, note my words carefully, take a person who is anemic and deficient in iron and give them iron, it will work. There is no doubt about it because the person was deficient. But if you take a person 
who is anemic but not deficient in iron, iron will not work because the person is deficient in something else or the person is so inflamed in their bodies because of either an infection or just something that is an indolent inflammation that's, a, that's there. Well, they won't absorb that iron. So you have the problem that when you do these trials to see if fortification is working, the key question to ask yourself is, did they do that trial on some a group of patients who were deficient in that nutrient? And did they do what is called a clinical trial, which is a very carefully controlled trial, making sure that the person ate that food? Well, if they did that, you'll find that it does work, but it's not brilliant. It raises the hemoglobin by about 10% in many cases. When, uh, there, you know, there's a system called the Cochrane Review. The Cochrane Review is a systematic review that brings together all the trials that have been done so far and puts them into one analysis so that you get one figure saying, did it work or did it not work? The fact is the Cochrane Reviews show that when you look at all the data together, it hardly works. There's a very small benefit. But there's a worse problem. The worst problem is this, that these are trials conducted in very, very controlled environments. The way to really understand if it works is to decontrol the whole thing. Just go out, give it to people, give it to communities and see, did it work in that community which you were not controlling where they could decide, well, I don't like the look of this fortified food, so I won't eat it. There's no one coming to their house every day saying, did you eat that food? Nobody's bothering. Everyone's saying, there's this rice on the market or it's being supplied to your house. Go ahead and use it. If you don't want to use it, they're not going to come and bother you. These are called effectiveness trials, as opposed to the earlier control trial, which is called an efficacy trial. Effectiveness trials are critical pieces of information to use for when you want to take something to a policy. So you can have all the science you want. You can have rats in a cage. You can have controlled dietary studies. They mean nothing unless they are tested in the real world. That's an effectiveness trial. And when fortified foods have been tried in effectiveness trials, they simply don't work. And one of the reasons is the uptake is very poor. People just figure out there's something different about this rice or the salt and they don't buy it or they don't use it or they give it to the animals, something else. It doesn't go into the right people. So it's really important to review the data on what people are saying, did something work or did it not work? We have to show that this worked in an unsupervised normal life, daily life trial. That's the effectiveness trial. And my answer to you is very few of these trials have been done. And when they've been done, they haven't really worked to the level that they should have. Doctor, you spoke to us a little earlier about one of India's previous programs with food fortification, which is the iron fortified salt, which was brought in because of the high number of goiter cases seen in hilly regions due to iodine deficiency. Has that program worked? And what is, dif- what is the difference between what we did back then when we uh, fortified salt with iodine and now? All right. That's a good question. So iron fortified salt 
is where you fortify salt, which is already fortified with iodine, and you add iron. This is called double fortified salt. So when fortification started, it was a single fortification only with iodine. And this was a major problem. Iodine is not available at all in diets that are far away, in places that are far away from the coast or in hilly areas. And what people found was that in these areas, a lot of people had swellings on their necks called goiters. And these were obvious clinical disfigurements and symptoms. And it, it really, you know, it, it hits you in the eye. And one of the most successful programs that started then was, and here was the philosophy of it, there is no nutrient in the diet. Therefore, we have to put the nutrient into the food. Which food can we do it in? And it looked like salt was the easiest to do it because technically it could be done without much trouble. It was done and it was spectacularly beneficial. That's wonderful. The problem with several of the subsequent nutrients has been that they don't fulfill that property of iodine. And that is that iodine is negligible in those diets in the places where fortification worked. The fact is, Iron is present in the diet of everyone, everywhere. Vitamin A, carotene, all the other nutrients are not like iodine. So to put iodine in the same frame as many of the nutrients that have followed iodine, kind of masquerading to have the same effect as iodine because it has the same problems of deficiency like iodine, are wrong. Iodine was almost zero in the diet. There's no doubt about it. If you go to the coastal areas, there's a lot of iodine in the diet. In fact, there is a problem now in India that we're seeing with the latest survey of urinary iodine that was done across the country in children, that in Chennai, for example, the amount of urinary excretion of iodine is high. It's almost coming to the worrisome toxic level. 50% of the children who gave urine samples for testing in Chennai, had levels of excretion that were more than what would be considered a safe level. And that's because fortification has gone on completely untargeted. So rather than where the fortification is given to where it's needed, if you push fortified salt in areas where people have iodine in their dietary supply because they're near the coast, you will start seeing signs of excess. So I want to come back to that first point, that there was no iodine in the diet, therefore you had to chemically put it into the diet. That's not the case with, with, with iron, vitamin A, vitamin B12, folate. There is native content of these nutrients in the foods that we eat. But we have to eat a diverse diet and we have to absorb it. So that's the, the problem that really... Um, we were, we were just adding too much nutrient into, into, into these foods. And unlike um, iodine, they were not needed. Now, let me come to the second problem. Now, it worked for iodine. There's no question. There was a time when, uh, I, when children were going blind. And in fact, there was a national program to prevent blindness in children, uh, which was giving vitamin A supplements, mega-dose supplements to children. They worked very well. Blindness has disappeared. Goiter is rare to see now. So you're, you're seeing that 
programs worked with clinical symptoms. But once the clinical symptoms disappeared, the agenda became, well, we have to prevent these, uh, these uh, nutrient deficiencies. And because we're not seeing the clinical disease or deformity anymore, let's look at the blood to see, can we make some sort of diagnosis of deficiency based on a blood level of that nutrient? Because we can't see the deficiency if we look at the person. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. And so this began, and there was another huge sort of uh, initiative around the world to set what we call cutoffs or diagnostic cutoffs to diagnose if someone is deficient or not. The problem is if you set that cutoff very high, you'll automatically diagnose a lot of deficiency. It's as simple as that. And we have to be aware that cutoffs vary from country to country. A very good example of this is hemoglobin, which we'll talk of later. But the hemoglobin cutoff for diagnosing anemia is probably too high for India. And the, there is uh, the WHO is beginning to consider whether new cutoffs should be put in place. So the point eventually I'm getting to is that supplements worked. Supplements were supplements. They were, they were not fortificants. They were just actual pharmacological doses of vitamin A that were given to children. For iodine, it worked as a fortificant where it was put into the salt, but there was no iodine in the diet. So it worked again. Unfortunately, you're beginning to see too much iodine in coastal areas. So it makes you think that perhaps I should be targeting my fortification specifically. I, and more important, I think we have to monitor what we're doing. You can't just dump nutrients on an unsuspecting population and not measure if something's going wrong and not measure if you're giving too much. This is a double-edged sword. And if we go the way we're going with this, you know, untrammeled enthusiasm for just going for it, I worry deeply. Doctor, you talked about too much of a nutrient and it being a double-edged sword. What does the scientific evidence tell us about the safety of adding iron to our diets? Have other countries experimented with this? Clearly, you cannot experiment with this because that would be deeply unethical, I suppose. Yes. Um, so um, what you can do is to kind of begin to look at a population that has a lot of iron in their diet and begin to ask the question, does a particular syndrome or a symptom or a deficiency or an excess occur in those who eat too much of something? Now, I'm coming back to, I said, I use the word deficiency and excess. I'll come back to that. But let me just keep going with the thought that is there a problem when you eat too much? Now, the way nutritionists think of a problem of eating too much is that they think of it in toxic or toxicological uh, frameworks. In other words, it's poison. You eat too much. Did you get poisoned? What were your symptoms of poisoning? And at what level did that poisoning symptom occur? But that's a toxicological framework. There's a health framework that is far more insidious and really needs to be evaluated carefully. And this has come over the last 20 years, the suspicion has been there that if people eat too much iron, are they at risk of chronic diseases? Why? Because iron is, a oxidating, is an oxidative element. 
it causes oxidation inside your body. Not a good thing. Now, people began to evaluate. Were, for example, people who had high iron stores, did they seem to have a higher risk of getting diabetes? Did they have a higher risk of getting hypertension or high blood pressure? Did they have a higher risk of having high blood cholesterol? All the triumvirate of risks that lead to that end result of a heart attack. Did they have those? And from 20 years ago, we know that there has been this risk that people have known about. Everyone's known about it. But we have disregarded risk for toxicity. We consider the amount of iron to take as safe until you reach a toxic level. And that toxic level is when you get burning in your stomach, which is like a poisonous symptom. But no, you could get a risk of increased diabetes or hypertension or high blood cholesterol at lower levels. It, and particularly when you toxicology looks at a high intake that may be taken once or twice. You really need to look at this risk, which is a long-term risk, which you might even consider a lifetime risk. That means that somebody was taking large amounts of a nutrient and going on and on and on without anyone monitoring it. And of course, they didn't get into the toxic level. But here's the problem. They began to exhibit signs or risks for getting chronic disease. And now you consider what's the cost to a person or to the state of dealing with that disease. We all know that diabetes is a deep drain on a pocket and on a state exchequer. Yet, if we are going to just keep giving large amounts, let's just stick with iron in this case, you really have to worry that are we pushing people the wrong way. For sure, this has now been published over and over again. So it's not me saying it. I'm quoting studies that have been done. But here's the other problem. It's the problem of what I call imbalance. Now, imbalance, and I think for all of us who have stepped into a kitchen to cook something, we understand the point of balance very well. When you cook a dish, you're always looking for balance. You're looking for balance between hot and sweet and sour and sweet and salty and sweet. And you see where I'm getting. There's a balance of different spices and so on. And all of us have made mistakes when cooking, where you've added a little too much of one. And do you know what you do then? You start adding more of the other in that hope that more and more and more will somehow create that balance. That is where, that is bad cooking, to be honest. But the truth is this can happen in your body, that if you take too much of one nutrient, your body has to work extra hard to get rid of that nutrient. And to get rid of that nutrient, it has to use resources which are other nutrients. So taking one nutrient in excess actually results in deficiencies of other nutrients. Now the great Gopalan, that is Dr. Gopalan, who was the, who was the father of nutrition in this country, did a very nice experiment 50 years ago where he looked at the, the condition of people who were uh, eating too much of jowar, but nothing else. They were very poor people. They were eating this millet called jowar in excess. Now that's because they were hungry, but they were eating nothing else. Now jowar contains a specific amino acid that is in excess. 
and it causes a problem for other amino acids which then become deficient. And these poor people who were eating this jowar without anything else began to show signs of a disease called pellagra. Pellagra is a deficiency of a vitamin called niacin and, and an amino acid called tryptophan. And essentially they were getting deficient and becoming pellagrin, pellagrins as they called. And I shouldn't use that word, that's pejorative, I suppose. So they had pellagra and they um, essentially had this because they ate too much of one amino acid and caused a deficiency in the other. This is imbalance. And the proponents of fortification don't realize this, that you just can't go on increasing one nutrient at the expense of the others. Anyone who's a good cook will know this instinctively. And I wonder why there isn't a pushback against this. Doctor, if fortification must be looked at with restraint, you spoke to us a little earlier about dietary diversity. Is that the solution in order to increase <clears throat> or in order to make sure that all of us have nutritious diets? Yeah. Well, you know, there are different ways to look at this. I mean, you can look at it as a biological system which requires a medley of nutrients to be working in an orchestrated fashion for good health, in which case the only answer to your question is a diverse diet, which provides all the nutrients. And of course, one shouldn't eat the same thing every day. That is now not a biological construct. It's also more a social and a personal construct where you're saying, yeah, you've got likes and dislikes. You can get sick of some foods if there's too much of it. And we know that happens in the seasons when there's plentiful mangoes. I suppose a day comes when you say, well, I just don't feel like having a mango today. I've just been eating too many. I don't know if that happens, but it could. So I think this is there's so many different levels at which to look at the need for a diverse diet. But let's just stick with the more mundane biological level, which is a an organism has a variety of pathways which require a variety of nutrients, all of which in a certain level to, to, to keep going. And the body has a way in which it can maintain the levels of each of these by excreting excess and not allowing it to build up so that there are no toxic levels. That delicate balance, which we also call homeostasis, it's a big word, but it just means keeping everything the same as they were. Now that, if you think of the cost, it takes a lot to keep that homeostasis going. That requires that balanced diet. Now, how do you get it? The truth is, if you use um, the RDA, that is the, the metric that was put forward much earlier uh, for nutrient requirements. Uh, so what happened, if I can just go a little backwards for a bit, the nutrient requirements of a population are a range. If you take a range, a group of people, and carefully measure their requirements, you'll find that not all of them have the same requirement. Isn't that stunning? You'll have some people who need little and some people who need a lot. It could be for a variety of reasons, but that is what we call variability of requirements. So if you were to feed a population, typically you would feed the average value. And you will find that people will generally eat a little more or a little less as the requirements go. So everyone is in balance. But what happens is if you then say, no, I've got a range of requirements and I'm going to take the maximum requirement and I'm going to use that to judge a diet, 
obviously you will begin to find diets don't meet that expectation because a person could have, supposing you're looking at a range of people, one person has a huge iron requirement. Are you going to apply that probably badly measured requirement, but are you going to apply that huge requirement to the foods of everyone? Are you going to use that standard? That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I think you would rather say, no, I think let's go with the average because it's very likely that those extreme values at the end of the range are badly measured, and that is likely to happen, whereas the middle value will not be affected that much. So this is the way population nutrition is actually followed. And if you look at a diet and you think about a diverse diet and does it meet the needs, you'll find that a diverse diet meets that average requirement without any trouble. Now, yes, I do understand that there are there is a population in India, a subpopulation, one bit, which is desperately poor and cannot find the means to eat that diverse diet. I do understand that. So please don't think I'm saying all diets in India meet it. That's about 10 to 20 percent, though. It's not the 70 percent of the Indians who, who, whose diets are hopeless. It's not. That's, that's a myth. That's a fallacy. I can't think of any other good word for it, but it's, it's just wrong. It's plain wrong to say that because I use those extreme values, at the end of the range of my measurements, I used those values to judge a diet. And I found that the diets don't, don't match up to those extreme values. Therefore, diets are not diverse enough in India. And therefore, I must put in a lot of chemicals. Is utterly wrong. It's like saying, I will use elite athletes in a population to judge everyone else. That's again wrong. You cannot judge the abilities of a of a population based on a gold medal winner at the Olympics. It doesn't make sense. Yes, we aspire to that, but we don't use that standard. So we have to be sensible. And really, I think diversity is a very important thing. You just said it. It is a contradiction in terms to view diversity and fallacy in the same, uh, sorry, diversity and fortification in the same frame. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Doctor. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.